Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. James chapter 5, now for our time in God's Word. We have not fully exhausted our time in worship until we have gone to the Word and allowed the Spirit of God who has superintended this text to speak to us through His Word. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God is alive and at work in your life. And so He desires to use this Word. Yes, it is an ancient text, but it is also a relevant text for us today. And so for 16 weeks... We have been just journeying paragraph by paragraph right through this book, letting God's word do the most, most of the talking to us. And so we are just two weeks away from finishing our time, but I am really excited about this particular paragraph. I've entitled this message, Prayer Dependence. Prayer Dependence. I want to invite you to follow along with me, chapter 5, verse 13 down through verse 18. Pastor James here is writing to a group of scattered Jewish Christians. There's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of persecution. And he writes this in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, in light of what he just said in verse 15, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you're writing some things down and keeping some notes, I want to give you the big idea. It's the, it's the through line that I believe will help us to understand what James is wanting us to get this morning from this passage. It's this. Prayer is the Christian's greatest expression of dependence on God. Prayer. That humble expression when we bow a knee, when we bow our head, when we speak to our Heavenly Father. Prayer is the greatest expression that a Christian has of dependence upon God. Now as humans, we are consumed with fixing our own problems, aren't we? We are. And if you, need, if you need proof and if you need evidence of that, you don't have to look any further than a roll of duct tape. i got to tell you, there are very few things in life that you cannot fix with duct tape. I've got some pictures for you here just to kind of give you some examples of some people who have tried to fix, fix some things with duct tape. Now, I don't know who the guy is. Oh, go back, go back. That one. Stay on that one. I don't know who the guy is that like wrapped up this, I don't know, I think that's like a telephone pole or something. Wrapped this thing up in duct tape, stepped back, eyed that thing, was like, you know what, I think we're good. That'll do. Like that's just the right amount of duct tape that we need to solve that problem. 
How about this next guy? He was in a bit of a, of a collision. I think he's trying to convince insurance that his car's not totaled. If he can just sort of kind of keep it all together. There's more value in the amount of duct tape on that car than what's left of the car itself. Okay? Here's another one. This person was getting a little impatient. <laughs> HOA was not fixing the asphalt. And so they're like, you know what? I got this. I got a roll of duct tape. I can fix that problem. Problem solved, folks, right there. This next picture, you've heard of run flat tires. This is, this is the upcoming competitor for run flat tires. Just duct tape it. You can, you can drive over all the nails and screws you want. I got one more for you. Here's this guy getting the job done. Can you imagine? Hang on a second. You board your plane. You sit down next to your window seat. You, got your, you put your earbuds in. You got your music going. You get your book out. You're just sort of getting comfortable waiting for that plane to take off. You look out the window, and this is what you see. It's like, you know what? I think I don't feel compelled to take this flight anymore. But we are, we are problem fixers. We like to take the problem into our own hands and find our own solution. We are, we are self-dependent. I was reminded of this in my own life. Even this week, our second son, Austin, wanted to wash the car. And so he gets the hose from the backyard. He brings it into the front yard. He gets it hooked up to the nozzle. And he turns it on. And the water is spraying out the middle of this hose. There's this massive hole in the hose. And so what do I do? I tell him, Austin, go find the duct tape. I kid you not. So he wraps this thing up with duct tape. And guess what? It just doesn't work. Sometimes that duct tape might be successful. Most times it's not. Here we are trying to fix our own problems, trying to find our own solutions. And duct tape Christians are those who believe that they can fix all of their problems apart from God. That apart from prayer and apart from dependence and apart from faith and seeking after him, I can come up with my own solution and I can sort of duct tape this thing together so that it maybe still works. You know the gospel is completely God-dependent. Think about it. You and I, before Jesus, if you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus today, before you became a follower of Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. There is nothing a dead person can do to bring themselves back to life. We are dependent on God. We were dependent on God. And so God sent his son Jesus to do everything for us that we could not do for ourselves so that by simple faith, in Christ and what he did, we can be brought into a relationship with God. The gospel is absolutely 100% totally dependent upon God. So do you know what it communicates when we who are followers of Jesus, who have gotten in by dependence upon God, now say, God, I can take care of this? It communicates, I don't need you, God. When we don't pray, essentially what we're saying is, I can fix this. The number one measurement of your dependence on God is your prayers. How much you pray and what you pray about. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. The things that you pray about, that you do pray about, that is where you are expressing dependence on God. 
you've got some bills that need to be paid. You're, you're concerned about your kids as they're, they're, they're becoming uh, teenagers. You're praying about them. That is the area of your life where you are dependent. Your relationship with your spouse, you're praying about that. That is where you are dependent. But I would also say that the areas of your life where you are not praying, that is the area of your life where you are self-dependent. Where you are trying to duct tape it together because you think you can handle it and you don't need God. James is calling every one of us today back to dependent prayer. God, I cannot, but you can. So prayer is the Christian's greatest expression of dependence on God. So the question I want to ask this morning is when does prayer express dependence? There are four opportunities in this text where we can express dependence through prayer. When does that happen? We're going to unpack these one at a time here right from this text. Number one, if you're writing some things down, it's going to look like this. Prayer expresses dependence when, number one, my personal rhythm is consistent. When my personal rhythm of prayer is consistent, it's, it's habitual, it's ongoing. We see this right in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's almost like Pastor James is like asking for a raising of hands. Like, hey, anybody suffering today? Okay, pray. Anybody cheerful today? Okay, sing praise. So here what we have is, is this, this rhythm, this personal rhythm of consistent worship to God. And there are two movements to this rhythm. My mind goes to mechanics. My mind goes to um, a piston in the engine of your car. Now, you don't have to be mechanical to understand this. But the piston that drives the engine of your car that's connected to the crankshaft, with every turn of that crankshaft, that piston has two movements. It goes down and it goes up. It goes down and it goes up. Those are the two movements that are driving that engine. It goes down and it goes up. So James is saying here there are two movements to your rhythm of worship. You are going down in prayer. You are going up in praise. Hey, are you suffering? Go down in prayer. Are you cheerful? Go up in praise. Down in prayer and up in this expression of singing praise to God. So when life is hard, pray. Is any, anyone suffering? Like anyone here today, suffering? Are, are you feeling the burden of relational loss in your life? Maybe somebody that you loved has passed on. Are you, are you dealing with, with habitual, ongoing uh, pain and sickness? Are you dealing with the struggle with sin? Are you suffering? Do you feel like that things in your life just seem to be unraveling? Is that you this morning? Then pray. Go down in prayer. We pray. And we pray about everything. This has been a consistent theme through the book of James. The theme of suffering. You go right to chapter 1 and verse 1. We find that all of these Jews were dispersed. That was because of suffering. Then in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into suffering of various kinds, trials of various kinds. James is coming right back to where he started with in chapter 1. Now he's coming right back to it in chapter 5. If that's you, pray. Pray, pray, pray. What is it in your life that is bothering you? What is it in your life that is burdening you? Take that need to God in prayer. We must be people of prayer. We are going down 
in the consistent rhythm of prayer. We are praying continually. We are praying about everything. We are praying in the spirit. We are praying for the advancement of the kingdom like with this church plant in Nicaragua. We are praying for the spiritual growth and development in our own lives. We are praying to push back the spiritual demonic forces at work in the world today. We are praying because we are suffering. We are praying for our kids. We are praying for our marriage. We are praying for our job. We are praying for our lost loved ones. We are praying for those in governance who God has placed there to rule over us. We are praying about all things and in everything, bringing those needs to God. Pray. When life is hard, pray. But then the second movement of the rhythm, we go down in prayer, we come up in praise. And I love what James says. Is any cheerful? And he doesn't just say let him praise, that would be sufficient, but he says let him sing praise. Sing praise. We did that this morning. Now, Can I offer you my personal opinion today? You could say no, but I'm going to do it anyway. My personal opinion is that singing is the Christian's greatest expression of worship. There is something unique about using melodies and harmonies to communicate the praise and the response of worship to God. And you think about it, there are really... Very few other opportunities that we ever have to gather together with a group of people and sing, like outside of church. The only other time might be at the seventh inning stretch at the ball game when you sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Like, other than that, when, when is everybody, like, when are we all gathering and when is there a large group of people gathering to sing? What a gift that it is to us to sing together to sing our praise. We've gone down in prayer. We're coming up in praise. Is anyone cheerful? That means that you have taken heart and there is this joy in your spirit, which by the way, these things can be happening simultaneously. You don't have to wait for the trial to be gone to be singing the praise. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. I've already been on a little bit of a soapbox. Can I get on another soapbox? When we come together as a church, understand that church is not like when you go to a concert. Don't treat the singing here like there's some performance going on up on the stage and you all are here just to sort of be entertained. As a matter of fact, I would say that the people on the stage are not the, quote, performers and you are the, quote, audience. You are the performers. And the audience is God. We are singing praise. The direction of the praise here uh, that that, that James is wanting to communicate is that it's praise to God. And so as the team stands up here and, 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 and leads us, that's what they're doing. God has gifted them and given them the ability to sing or to play an instrument. And so they are leading us, all of us, corporately and expressing and singing our praise to God. And if I could go one soapbox higher, can I call on the men of City Point Church to lead out in our corporate expression of singing? Listen, I... There's just something, you don't have to call the women to this as much. But we got to call the men to this. Don't, don't, don't think like, boy, it's just not manly to sing. The world says what manliness is, is your ability to duct tape all the broken things in your life. That's what the world says is manliness. You know what the gospel says manliness? Is your affections for Jesus. 
And so as you express your worship, men, your kids need to see it. Your wife needs to see it. Your church community needs to see you expressing your praise to God. Okay, I'm coming down off my soapbox. It is the consistent rhythm of both of these. We go down in prayer. We go up in praise. That expresses dependence on God. So how is your rhythm? How consistent is that rhythm in your life that you're going down in prayer and up in praise and down in prayer and up in praise? James is calling us back to that consistent rhythm. Prayer expresses dependence when my personal rhythm is consistent. Number two, prayer expresses dependence when my debilitating sickness is incessant. I want you to see it in the text. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. These are beautifully fascinating verses in our New Testament. And I I unfortunately believe that they are woefully neglected as well. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through every single line of these two verses and just unpack them a little bit, explain them a little bit so that we can understand what Pastor James was communicating to this community of believers in the first century. This is when your prayer dependence depends on somebody else. This person here in this text is so sick and debilitated that they are not even able to gather with the corporate body, and so they are calling for the elders, which are the pastors and the spiritual leadership of the church, to come to where they are, so they are dependent on the prayers of the spiritual authority in the church to pray over them. So he says, is any among you sick? The word sick is a very broad term. Nearly half of the times it's used in the New Testament, it does speak of a physical sickness, but it could also mean mental, emotional spiritual. It can even have this idea of just a weakness and a frailty. Is anyone among you sick? Then he says, let him call for the elders of the church. I believe here we see an expression of faith in the one who is sick to call for the elders to come. The elders are not going around saying, we're going to go around to all the people and do this for them. This individual is saying, I want the elders. I, by faith, am calling them to come and to pray over me because I have this debilitating, ongoing sickness. Let him call for the elders of the church. I want to draw your attention to the plurality of the word elders. Elder is a synonym in Scripture for bishop and for pastor. So the three terms can be used interchangeably. And it is, a, it is a plural office that there are elders, multiple, in every church, singular. So calling for these elders to come and to pray over this person. Prayer is one of the two primary responsibilities of the elders. The second would be the word, the teaching and the protection of the truth. And then it says that they are anointing this person with oil. This is beautifully symbolic, and and you see this all throughout the Old Testament, that an anointing with oil was this expression of consecration. It was this symbol of consecration that when a king was going to be enthroned, they would anoint the king. 
as an expression of consecration and setting apart of that king for that royal office. And so here, this is not some magical potion that the pastors have in the closet in the office that they only go to when somebody's sick and they pull this out and it's got some some interesting magical quality to it. No, this is symbolic of we are consecrating this person for this moment, believing that God can, in fact, heal them. And then it says that they are anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's important. Because the name of God bears the character of God. That God will never do anything, including healing, inconsistent with his character. And so what they're essentially saying is, God, this is according to your character, this is according to your will, and this is for your glory alone. So here's the scene in verse 14. The pastors, plural, have positioned themselves over the individual who is sick with this debilitating infirmity. And the individual has placed himself under the authority of those pastors. And then the anointing oil has been used to consecrate this moment to God. So what happens? And why? Well, that's verse 15. Verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save or restore the one who is sick. So this prayer of faith, this again is not some special faith healer. The attention is not even on the faith per se, but on the prayer. This is not the attention on the oil that was used to anoint them. This again is not some, some formula necessarily, but it is the prayer of faith that God is using. And then it says, and the Lord will raise him up. Because God is ultimately the great physician. God is capable, God is powerful, God is miraculous enough to raise up the one who has been sick. And then it says this, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's an interesting verse. And in the ancient world, there was a strong connection between sin and sickness. It was, it was often understood that, that this, this could possibly go together. You remember last week the story of Job, those three friends that were not very helpful as friends who came alongside of Job were pointing out that his infirmity and his ailment in his life was because he was not right with God. Now, it was a wrong judgment, but that was just kind of where their mind went. You might recall the blind men in the Gospels when people were coming around and they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And they're making that connection between sickness and sin. So James is saying, if, not every time and not always, but if there is that connection, he will be forgiven. He will, that, that sin will be released and he will be restored. Now, some of you in this room, or possibly even online, you have had a debilitating sickness. And you may have even gotten to the point of becoming cynical about that because you've prayed about it before. But what James is calling us to is to welcome spiritual authority into our life in these moments when it is ongoing and it is debilitating and even keeping you from the body who can also pray for you to call by faith the elders and the spiritual authority of the church to come over to consecrate that moment and to pray over you. And I believe this is not just a call for those who maybe have been who are not able to be with us today, but it's really a call for all of us to welcome and to allow the spiritual authority that is in our church through our pastor team. Authority today is suspect, and maybe rightfully so, 
even more so in the church because of how things within the church community have often, uh, the authorities in the church sometimes take things uh, and do things that they shouldn't do. And this again is why the plurality of the pastors is so important because it helps to protect the congregation from authoritarian leadership. So I understand that authority is suspect, but God has placed authority into our church through our pastor team for the purpose of spiritual oversight, doctrinal purity, spiritual protection, operational oversight, and yes, even intercessory prayer. And I would say that a pastor who does not pray for the people of the church that God has called him to oversee is operating underneath and beneath his responsibilities as a pastor. Every once in a while, somebody will come to me and they'll say, Hey, John, I've got a question for you. And then they'll say this, I know you're busy. And if you've ever said that or if you happen to say that, I will kindly and I will graciously stop you and correct you. Because if a pastor is too busy for people, that pastor is too busy. Because one of my primary responsibilities is to you, to pray for you. Every week of the world, I am taking the names of our congregation, and I am praying, and I am taking you to God in prayer, and our pastor team is doing the same. We are praying, and we are interceding for the healing, and for the needs, and for the burdens that you carry. And when you share something with me, I promise you, I will do my dead-level best to pray for you. So James is just calling us into this community under the spiritual authority of the pastors to allow that and to welcome that in our lives. Prayer expresses dependence personally. That's verse 13, calling you to pray. But now also the spiritual authority, verses 14 and 15, when there is a debilitating sickness. And then thirdly, prayer expresses dependence when my spiritual accountability is frequent. First, it's personal. Then it's calling the elders and the spiritual authority. Now, it is every one of us within the body of Christ praying for one another. I love these verses. There is so much in here. I'm actually only going to take the first half of verse 16 for right now. But look at it with me. 16, therefore, in light of what he just said about the healing and about the prayer, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. All of us now going to one another, confessing our faults, confessing our failures, being open, being transparent, being accountable. And what are we receiving from our gospel community? Prayer. Prayer. Because now somebody else is praying over you because you are dependent on their prayers to bring that into your life that you need. I heard the story, maybe you've, maybe you've heard this story as well, of the four pastors who met for coffee one Monday morning as sometimes pastors do. And uh, these four pastors were talking, and one of, them, one of them just kind of brought up the reality that in all of these four congregations represented by these four pastors, a lot of times the people of those congregations would come to those four men, and they would confess, and they would share their burdens, and they would share their sin struggles and their problems. And one of these pastors said, you know what, we should probably do that too. If people are always coming to us and confessing. Why don't we take a moment right now, and why don't we confess to each other as pastors? what some of our, uh, our weaknesses are and what some of our sin patterns are. And so one by one they started and the first, pattern, uh, the first pastor shared uh, his particular sin and he said, you know what, I'm just lazy. Boy, if my congregation knew on Saturday nights at about 8 o'clock I go online and I'm looking for an outline and I kind of take somebody else's sermon and then I get up just a couple hours later and I preach it, but I'm just, I'm really lazy and I just, I need to confess that. 
And the next pastor began to share, and he said, you know, I'm just, I'm addicted to gambling. I just can't, I can't seem to get away from it. I can't seem to stop it. I've already, like, gambled away my retirement. My wife doesn't even know. I just can't stop doing it. Then the third guy shared his, his particular sin pattern, and he said, um, he said, you know, my, my pattern, my sinful struggle is anger. If, if my congregation only knew the way I talk to my wife and the way I talk to my kids, boy, I just can't seem to hold it in. There's no control. I'm just always angry. And so the first three went through what their sin struggle was, and they got to the last guy, and he's just kind of hesitating a little bit. You know, he's not really wanting to say anything. He's like, no, man, we've shared. You need to share. We've talked through ours. You need to share yours and confess to us. And finally he's like, you know what? Okay, my sin struggle is gossip, and honestly, I can't wait to get out of here and tell everybody what I just heard. I think a lot of us are hesitant to practice this verse because that's what we think is going to happen. That this is just sort of like, let's air all of our dirty laundry so that everybody can know and gossip and talk bad about us behind our back. But listen, that is not the pattern of a gospel-grounded church that James is trying to call us to. And so spiritual accountability, which I would say is both confession and prayer, must be the normal and regular reality in our church if we are truly going to be functioning as a gospel-grounded church. It is normal because it's not taboo, and it is regular, meaning it's happening all the time. It's happening on Sunday before or after church. It's happening in a life group in somebody's home. It's happening when a couple of guys are just getting together at a coffee shop and reading some scripture and just being open and honest and transparent about what's going on in their life. It is normal and it is regular and it should be happening in a church that is truly grounded in the gospel. A gospel-grounded church welcomes this kind of spiritual accountability. Look at what James says again. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confession is a gift of grace, and prayer is a gift of community. And because confession is a gift of grace, understand that the devil's going to do everything in his power to keep you from it. We think that confession is something to avoid. We think that confession is like, is, is, if I confess, again, everybody's going to know. So the devil starts to feed us these lies. Just keep that to yourself. Boy, if you share with, with, with that accountability partner or somebody in your life group, that struggle that's going on in your life, they're going to look at you differently. They're going to treat you differently. And the devil just starts feeding us these lies. When confession, understand, is really meant to be a gift from God, a gift of grace in our life. John calls us to walk in the light. And so when we have been walking in a pattern of darkness and sin, confession brings us back to the light. So that's grace. Confession is a gift of grace, and then prayer is a gift of the community. Your response to me when I come to you and I am open and honest about my struggle, I love it. James doesn't say, hey, you, what you need to do is you need to tell them all the reasons that got them into that mess in the first place. No, James doesn't say that. James doesn't say preach a little sermonette to them. No, he says when somebody comes and confesses their faults to you, pray. Pray. Like, that's it. Pray. Because we are dependent on the Spirit of God to do the internal transformative work that that individual needs. It's not about your counsel or your advice, although sometimes that's helpful. But in this context, somebody confesses and the person they confess to prays and lifts them up. You need your church and your church needs you. 
Somebody in here needs you to pray for them today. And you need someone else to pray for you today. It's a gift of the community. So what does it look like when a church is not grounded in the gospel? When James 5.16 is not happening? Usually it, it, it has this feel of a museum instead of a hospital. You go to a museum and these, these artifacts or these picture-perfect things are all like behind glass so they don't get dust on them. And there's just the right lighting on them and everything just looks just right and just perfect. You go to a hospital, hospital, what do you get? Just a whole bunch of sick people that are broken and they need some help and they need some attention. But when a church is not grounded in the gospel, it looks more like a museum than a hospital. Confession receives judgment instead of prayer. And that's usually why people don't confess in those kind of churches. Because now people start talking. And now people start looking at you differently because you were actually open and you were actually honest about your struggle. Broken people are treated more like projects to be fixed rather than people to be prayed for and prayed over and loved back to the gospel. No one is being real, and everybody knows it. Those who are doing really well, or at least outwardly doing really well, or are perceived to be doing really well, are often promoted in those kind of churches, and those who mess up are often demoted in those kind of churches. I want to give you a statement. If you're writing notes, write this down. I want you to think about this. I want you to like have a cup of coffee tomorrow morning and look at this statement and just process it and let the Spirit of God speak to you through this or get with somebody this week and talk through this. This statement, I believe, is so important, and it's this. The gospel allows us to be broken without leaving us hopeless. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ actually allows you to be honest, vulnerable, and broken. And it does not leave you in that brokenness in a hopeless state of misery. Because it is the same gospel that allows you to be broken, that is the same gospel that is the answer for your brokenness. And so we are gospel people. Those of us who put faith in Christ, we have, we have been set apart through the work of Jesus Christ, and so now that position and that identity that has been gifted to us allows us to go to one another and to confess. Because it's that same gospel that is the answer to our need. And so practice frequent confession and offer frequent prayers. When you sin, confess. If you're a young man in here and this week you looked at pornography or you struggled with sexual sins, go to an older brother in Christ today and confess that sin to that brother. If you're a young mom in here and you, you struggled this week because you just, those kids, they got to you one too many times. And you said some things, and you did some things, and you allowed that anger to explode. Go to, go to an older mom or maybe a grandmom in this room today and confess that sin to that woman. And let her pray over you. Young man, let that older brother pray over you. Let their pray, prayers bring you back to a place, as James will say in the next phrase, a place of healing. This ought to be the regular, frequent expression of a gospel-grounded community. When someone, when you sin, confess. When someone comes to you and confesses, pray. That's your response. And then James says that you may be healed. There's a lot in that statement. We don't have time to unpack it all this morning. But I do believe that unconfessed, habitual sin gives entrance to the devil in our lives. And so the confession releases that. 
that you may be healed. Again, that word speaks of physical, but it also speaks of mental, emotional, and spiritual healing. Whatever the ailment, whatever the infirmity, you will be released from that, you will be healed from that, and confession is the mechanism. It's a gift of grace. Prayer expresses dependence when my personal rhythm is consistent, my debilitating sickness is incessant, my spiritual accountability is frequent, and fourthly and finally, when my ordinary praying is expectant. Oh, I love this. We're not done yet. It just keeps getting better and better here. My ordinary praying is expectant. Second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. First, James is giving one absolute qualifier, that in order for you to have effective, powerful prayers, you must be righteous. Does that make you nervous? <laughs> like, that's a tall order. Like, i got to be righteous? Like, what does that, what does that mean? This is what sets Christianity apart from every other type of way or organized religion in the world today. Any other system of spirituality, any other system of of moral improvement, Christianity is so uniquely different and set apart from those because righteousness does not come from you. It is gifted through the finished work of Jesus. And so if you are here this morning and you are thinking, man, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't know that my prayers are going to have much power or much effect or much work because I don't really feel very righteous. You are righteous through Christ. That is who you are. That is your identity. And so you, child of God, follower of Jesus, you can have effective, powerful, working prayers because of what Christ has accomplished for you, not because of all the great things you're doing for him. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. That is the one qualifier. You must be righteous in order to have powerfully working prayers. And so if you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you are not righteous. Righteousness just means that you have been put in right standing, in right position before God. And your sin, friend, your sin has separated you from that right position with God. And the only way you can be made right with God is by putting faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you will by faith come to Jesus, then you too will be righteous and your prayers will have power even as they are working. There's one absolute qualifier and then he gives one ordinary example. Verse 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Understand you may or may not be a student of the Bible. Maybe you, didn't raise, maybe you weren't raised in Sunday school and learned some of these different stories about some of these great prophets of the faith. But for these Jewish listeners that the book of James was written to, Elijah was one of their most revered prophets and a sensational one at that. I mean, this guy prayed down fire from heaven and consumed the altar before the false worshipers of Baal. This guy didn't even die. Like, his exit was he got in a fiery chariot and he went up into the sky. Like, the Jews would have been like, this is, Elijah is the man. Like, if anybody's righteous, Elijah's righteous. But do you know what James wants to point out for us? Of all the things about Elijah that he wants to point out, look at what he says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just an ordinary guy who had an extra 
ordinary God. A nature like ours. You, you, you read the stories in 1 Kings 17 and 18, which this particular scene is pulled from 1 Kings 17 and 18. Ahab was the king of Israel, a wicked king. Israel had departed into idolatry from God. God was going to judge the people of Israel to bring them back to himself. And so he sends Elijah to pray and to bring this drought upon the land. But Elijah also suffered with anxiety and discouragement and depression and frailty and weakness and hunger all throughout his life. So the Jews may have revered Elijah as this great prophet, but James says he's just an ordinary guy, just like you and just like me. And so prayer, get this, prayer allows ordinary people to get extraordinary answers. And when you know that as an ordinary person, you have access to extraordinary answers, you pray differently. You pray expectantly. You pray believing that this is not just something reserved for the pastors and for the leadership of the church and for the prophets in the Old Testament, but it's reserved for you as well. That just as an ordinary, average follower of Jesus, you might look at yourself and think, there's not a whole lot to me. I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do like the wrong formula? And you might be discouraged by that. But listen, friend, you don't have to be an extraordinary Christian to get extraordinary answers. God hears the ordinary prayers of ordinary people, and then he does the extraordinary work in our lives. This is the example of Elijah. My wife just finished reading a book. The title of the book is Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I've got a picture of the book up here. Amy has this way. Like, I've got my own list of books I'm working through. Every book she reads, she's like, you need to read this book. You need to read this book. I'm like, can I finish my list first? So I haven't, I haven't read this book yet, but it's on my summer reading list. So I'm going to get to it, Amy. If you have a summer reading list, by the way, if you don't have a summer reading list, you should probably have a summer reading list, but put this book on your reading list for this summer. I read a small portion of it, the beginning of it, and the author of the book tells a story at the beginning about when he was finishing up seventh grade in the summer between seventh and eighth grade. And he was like a lot of junior hires, a little skeptical towards Jesus, kind of only a half-hearted follower of Christ kind of riding the coattails of his parents. And he was still figuring some things out, but he had a mentor that said, this summer, pray for your eighth grade class every single day. And he took that seriously. And so his older brother, who had just gotten his license, every morning would drive Tyler to his school. And he had a little roster, a, a attendance sheet of his eighth grade class. I guess that's back when they handed those things out. And he would take that roster and he would walk around that school and he would pray name by name for those students that would be a part of his upcoming eighth grade class. In the book, as he tells the story, he says that he wore a dirt track around that school morning after morning after morning after morning after morning, praying for those students as a soon-to-be eighth grader. He said in his own words, something happened that summer. He said, I fell in love with the God I wasn't sure was listening first day of his eighth grade school year, he goes to the principal and he says, I want to start a Bible club. Can I do that? The principal says, yeah, you can do that. You need a teacher to sponsor this. Go find a teacher. You can do it. So he did. He went and found a teacher, started a Bible club, and he kind of had this practice where he would go to the Bible and he would just sort of open it up and sort of like point to a verse and like, that's the verse that God wants me to talk about at the next Bible club. And 
And so he would, he would sort of exegete it as best he could, and then he would go to that Bible study on Wednesday morning, and he would, he would share with those students, whoever would come. Throughout the course of that year, God began to work in that class, and God began to work through the prayers of that eighth grade boy. Tyler says by the end of that year, they moved that Bible study from the classroom to the auditorium because of the number of people who were coming. And that one-third of his eighth grade class came to become followers of Jesus. This is what he said, and I'll quote him here right from the book. He said, It's either completely ludicrous or utterly breathtaking to think that in the midst of all the insecurities of a 13-year-old boy, the nervousness of going out for the basketball team, the awkward and slightly late arrival of puberty, the sweaty palms of school dances, that there was also the spirit of the living God. I love this bending history in loving response to the prayed mumblings of a kid. Ordinary boy, extraordinary God. And that's what prayer gives you access to. So don't sit here and think, God God can hear Elijah, and God can hear all those righteous people at church. No, if you are a follower of Jesus, he can hear you, and he can, hear, he can answer you just the same. Here's that big idea, and we'll wrap it up. Prayer is the Christian's greatest expression of dependence on God. I think somebody this morning needs permission to stop trying to hold your life together. Stop trying to duct tape all your problems and cover up all your holes and all of your insecurities. Express dependence on God through prayer. Trust Him to do what only He can do and watch as you as an ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill Christian experiences the extraordinary work of God in your life and on your behalf. So every week we have a series of statements or questions that we call learning to live. I'm gonna change it this week and I'm gonna call it learning to pray. Learning to pray. Here it is, number one, as we learn to pray, be real. Be real. When you pray, be you. Don't try to sound like me. Don't try to sound like somebody you heard pray in your life group. Don't try to sound like that person that, oh boy, the way they pray, it's just got all the right words. And, you know, they, they pray with like thee and thou and like Elizabethan English, like they're reading from the King James. You don't have to be somebody else. You be you. Pray. Prayer is a conversation with God. Be real. Next, be frequent. Be frequent. Don't let it be that the only time that you pray is when you're sitting in a cushioned chair here in church. Frequently. Daniel prayed three times a day. That was his pattern. So there are the planned times of prayer, but then also I love Nehemiah. Nehemiah would just throw up these spontaneous prayers as well. So you've got, you've got your frequent prayers that are planned, but then you've got your frequent prayers that are just in your car ride and the commute to work. They're on your break while you're eating your bologna sandwich. They're, and that, that walk as you're walking the dog in the park at the end of the day, like whenever it is, like you're just praying, you're just talking to God. Be real, be frequent. Number three, be intentional. Be intentional. Have a plan, like maybe a list. That's okay. Some people some dreams that you have, some burdens that you're carrying, some big stuff that you don't know that as an ordinary person, if God can even answer that, pray those things too. Be intentional. And then lastly, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for God to work. Be ready for God to show up. And then be ready to share. Be 
ready to share with somebody else what God did because as you share what God did in your life, it's going to encourage one of your brothers and sisters in Christ that God can do it in their life just the same. This is who we are. We are followers of Jesus. We are followers of his way. We've been made right with God through a personal relationship with Jesus. So now we talk to him and we commune with him and we express dependence on him. And if you're here today, as I've kind of pulled to the side several times and talked about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If you've never put faith in Christ, if you are not righteous and right with him, would you come see me afterwards? I would love to share with you what that means so that you can know that your sin is forgiven, that you have a relationship with God, and that now you, because you are right with him, you are communing in a relationship with him. Can we pray together? Father, prayer is such a beautiful gift. Thank you. Thank you for the access. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you that you bend your ear in anticipation of our voice. Lord, I pray today for those who might be here who are not right with God, meaning they've not put faith in Jesus. I pray that today, by faith, they would trust in you. Not trying to bring their best effort, but simple faith. I want to pray for the Christian today who has had a debilitating, ongoing sickness. I want to pray authority over their life, that your spirit would minister and work, and even according to your will and in your name, heal them. I want to pray that we as a gospel community would get into the regular rhythm and practice of confessing and praying. Confessing and praying. That it would not be some taboo thing for us to go to a brother or a sister in Christ and to say, hey, I need to share something with you. And then to have that brother or sister in Christ then put their hand on our shoulder and pray over us as we come back to walking in the light. Spirit of God, do what you can only do in our church. As we, as ordinary people, trust you to do the extraordinary, supernatural work of God in our midst. And we will trust you, and we will praise you, and we will sing to you, and we will celebrate all that you have done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.